Well, let's stay uh, standing as we turn now to the Bible. Psalm 120. Psalm 120. We'll begin a new series in the Psalms of Ascent. It's going to be a journey. We've called it My Journey, the whole series. And this morning, My Journey to the Truth. So let's turn to God's Word, Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. My friends, do please sit down. Well, I'm sure, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sure the experience of this psalm is very familiar to all of us here this morning because if you have ever had anyone say anything nasty about you, and all of us have, you will know how much that experience can hurt when someone says something nasty, perhaps behind your back certainly about you. It's that experience we're talking about. It can be particularly common among children of a certain age, perhaps around middle school. Uh, But uh, we all know it lasts well into adulthood uh, uh, too. In fact, I half suspect that many of the so-called sophisticated criticisms of works of art or novels or music These can be rather more adult, but simply different versions of the same sort of name-calling that happens in childhood. When someone writes as a criticism, I found his piece of poetry impermissibly obtuse. He may be just saying, I don't like you. (laughs) Or even, you look kind of funny to me. The sort of things that are heard regularly on school playgrounds during recess when the teacher is not looking. Well, yes, I think we're all familiar with this sort of thing. And the psalmist is dealing with this kind of lying deceit. Now, we don't know exactly who these people were who were saying nasty things about him. Uh, But we do know it was unpleasant You see, the word for deceit here has a sense of shooting. Uh, He had found these words that they were cutting, as we might say, or biting. Or perhaps they were jokes that jabbed, jabbing jokes. Or he was uh, in distress, he tells us. I call on the Lord in my distress. And you see, that word distress has the idea of a narrow 
place, a narrow confine. In other words, he's saying here that he was feeling trapped by their words. And that, you see, is the real experience of what happens to us when someone lies about us or spreads deceit about us. You see, the psalm is not just describing someone saying something petty, uh, an occasional sarcastic sneer, perhaps. Or No, this is a little more clever than that, perhaps a bit more sinister than that. It is deceit. They are carefully constructed lies. Someone, or perhaps even some group of people, were picking up on the things of the author of this psalm, things that he had said or done, and they're turning those things around to make him look bad. They're using his words as ammunition against him, shooting words. It's a form of slander. Not in the technical, legal sense of libel, but slander in the personal sense of being vilified or gossip deliberately spread about you around the community or at work. A water cooler conversation that you were not a part of but affects your life. Yeah, as I say, we've all experienced things like this, haven't we? And We will know how damaging, just how damaging such uh, deceit about us can be. This distress that he's talking about at the beginning here, I call on the Lord in my distress. This distress is no minor emotional bumped toe or scratched knee uh, in terms of feelings. No, the distress is the experience of being locked away of being labeled, and then using that label to dismiss you. When someone effectively launches a gossip campaign against you, the result of that can be to leave you feeling stuck. You feel that now whatever you do, from this point on, it will always be interpreted in that workplace or in that community in the light of what that person said about you. So if they said that you were jealous, and they told a story about that with just enough elements of truth to make the whole story, fake story, the whole fake narrative seem credible to those who are listening, then you fear that whatever you say now that is even vaguely critical of any program or any other event will be now taken in the light of that comment and fit that narrative in other people's heads. And they'll be saying to themselves as they listen to you, oh, he's just saying that because he's the jealous type. You are confined. This is the distress the psalmist is talking about. So if someone noticed that you like to wear a particular cologne, or maybe you have a a taste for Mozart's Requiem, and you are a fan of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, you have season tickets to them if you can have such things. 
You like to read Shakespeare, not watch Oprah's latest channel on TV. And they notice this pattern in your life, and so they create a story about you that gives an impression that, frankly, you are a bit of a snob. And so when the next time you turn up at the meeting or the community or the workplace party and you're wearing a perfectly normal outfit, pleasant looking, not particularly expensive, you now fear that everyone will be saying in their head something like, look at that snob, isn't she vain? Yes, it feels like you've been put in a box. What can you do about it? After all, you probably don't know exactly what was said because you are unlikely to have been there when it was said. All you know is that you pick up a change in atmosphere when you walk in the room or, or a feeling that, uh, that influences the tone when you are present. And if you try to say anything about it, you'll be just guessing and then it'll be easy to characterize you as being paranoid as well. And if you happen by chance to hit the nail on the head about what's being said about you behind your back, then you can just be characterized as being nasty as well as being vain. A box. You sort of bounce around it trying to get out. And on and on it goes. Yeah, this is the distress that he is talking about here in the first of these Psalms of Ascent. What is the answer? (laughs) Well, the answer is some good Christian therapy. And you know, the Psalms are the right place to find that. See, it's a great mistake for the church to have given up reading and studying and praying or even at times perhaps singing Psalms. Because the Psalms were written with an intentionality behind them to help us get our feelings in the right place. With all the ups and downs of life, we need to work those feelings through until we feel as we should feel. The Psalms are what one scholar of the Psalms uh, called Psalmnotherapy. And you'll know, I guess, that some of the Psalms then say things that are quite honestly and bluntly horrible. But then, quite honestly and bluntly, some of us feel things that are sometimes horrible. So just because this is the inspired Word of God doesn't mean that every emotion in it is approved by God. Oh, no. In the Psalms, we have people talking back to God about their feelings honestly in the context of this wonderful security that a child of God has because of the covenant relationship between God and His people. They're being real in a safe place with the Lord. And in particular, the Psalms of Ascent are a special collection of Psalms uh, put together in ancient Israel for a particular purpose. Now, if you've looked at these uh, Psalms before, you'll know that it 
finding out exactly what that purpose was is a little bit difficult and no scholar really agrees. Uh, The trouble, the real trouble is that we don't really know what the ascent was that the Psalms are ascending, if you see what I mean. So some scholars say that the Psalms are ascending within their own poetic style. There's a repeated refrain within them. So it goes peace and then peace is repeated or deceit and then deceit is repeated. And several of the Psalms have this pattern. It's particularly obvious in Psalm 130. But they're there in several of them. But they're not in all of them. And there are other Psalms which are not Psalms of ascent that have this kind of ascending pattern. So that doesn't seem to quite work, in my view, as, as, a, as a rationale for why they're called songs or psalms of ascent. Other scholars say that they were particularly used when the people returned from Babylon, and they may have been, but apart from anything else, you would, if that was the primary um, sort of context, you would expect then that they would be called psalms of a ascent in the singular not a sense in the plural because they came back from Babylon one time you see so well the most common interpretation among scholars and the one for want of a better option that I adopt is that the Psalms are pilgrim Psalms to the great festivals of ancient Israel things that they would have sung as they went up to Jerusalem that's probably the best Uh, understanding though even then some of them seem to feel to me more like the sort of thing you would write in your own personal private journal rather than sing together in church Uh, and this one Psalm 120 feels a bit more like that to me so perhaps they were also used to prepare the pilgrim personally or devotionally as they read and got their hearts in the right place to make that great journey back to the very center of God, though, of course, they could have been sung too. At any rate, it is that journey that I want us to take together, step by step. They probably had different reference points and were used for different things, as they can be used for different things in the church today. But whatever was the precise journey, they seem, I think, to be intended to help us on a spiritual journey closer to God so that with all the various difficulties and trials that yank us that way or the other, we can not get derailed. Now, of course, it is a little strange that the the first uh, psalm in this series begins with talking about deceit and lies and all that. It seems a little strange at first glance, but when you really think about it, that's the right place to begin. Getting truth in our relationship to God. You see, this dispenses once and for all with the rather unhelpful limerick that I at least uh, heard growing up from time to time. Uh, Perhaps you did too. I don't know whether it was common in America or not, but growing up we had a little rhyme that went like this, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Oh yeah? (laughs) Only if that were true. Unfortunately, if someone calls you fat or ugly or stupid or lazy, 
tends to hang over you unless it is addressed by the truth of God who calls you child of God, loved, precious in my sight. And so as we journey to a deeper, more profound, more intimate, more real, more loving, more truthful, more doctrinal relationship with God, we've got to get that truth in our heart right. Now you may think that talking about ourselves in this kind of way is sort of helpfully self hopelessly self-focused or sort of pop psychotherapy, but actually one of the repeated refrains in this psalm of ascents is directly related to the self. Did you notice that? Deliver me, he says. Even uh, then, perhaps a little bit rather self-indulgently, then repeated refrain, woe is me. He's talking about the self here, there's no doubt, and then he uses I a lot. I. This is not us. It is not them. It is not the committee of they. It is me, you, as individuals. Together, yes. But a personal matter that needs a personal response in a relationship with God. Well, then, how does he deal with this distress? First, he prays about it. In my distress, I called to the Lord. The first thing he does is not to tell one of his friends about it. Did you hear what so-and-so said about me? The first thing he does is not go to the authority figure, you know, the teacher or the principal or the pastor. This had hurt him in his distress. He, he needed help from God, first of all. I call on the Lord in my distress. In my distress, I called on the Lord and he answered me. the right approach, going first to God in prayer. You see, my friends, there's no good really trying to deal with lies about you before you've gone to first to God about them. You are just too raw still, too likely to lash out with a hurtful word yourself again, and then you just make everything worse. Somehow you have to go to God first and deal with it with him. And you see, that is far easier said from a pulpit than done in a home or a Bible study group or at work. For I'm not talking about just praying about it in some rote or traditional fashion. I'm talking about actually being honest with God in your heart about the distress, about the lying lips and the deceitful tongue. And that's difficult. For one of the things that is so hard about when people say nasty, mean, and untruthful things about us is we never want them repeated ever again, even to God. 
If someone says to you that your work is no good, the last thing you want to do is tell someone else that they said that your work is no good. You want to keep it to yourself in your little box, in your distress, in your narrow confine. But that just makes it worse. William Blake uh, wrote, I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath, my wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not, my wrath did grow. It eats away at you. Somehow you have to be honest enough to at least start with telling God about it. And I'm not saying that's easy, but it is where you're going to find healing. And that's the testimony of this person. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered him. And therefore, he is confident that he will deliver him. He has got the confidence from God that this, in God's sovereignty, as he's in charge of all things, even the lying lips, will be turned to his good and God's glory. What's God going to deliver him from? Perhaps not straight away from the consequences of the lies that have been spread. But as we'll see, straight away from adding to the cancer by spreading malignant words back again. That's a great deliverance. It takes immense strength, a great deliverance to be someone who stops gossip rather than keeps on spreading it around, especially when the wounds are yours, not someone else's. And that sort of strength can only be found from God. Go to God first. But actually the psalmist does not just go to God and ask him generally for help, important as that is. But having prayed about it, and then in the context of that prayer, the psalmist actually unleashes the ugliness that the pain has caused in his own soul up to God. Now, if you look down at verses uh, 3 and 4 with me, this is what I'm talking about. And I can't quite decide here whether those verses, uh, 3 and 4, those verses are a confession of the psalmist's personal anger and wish wrongly to get back at the horrible so-and-so who had done nasty things to him, or perhaps a prophetic denunciation of God's coming judgment, or even a sort of um, intellectual deduction from the moral framework of the universe that because of who God is and the way the world is, there'll be an inevitable result of telling lies, that if you are someone who tells lies about other people, no one will trust you. It's hard to decide between those options, I find. Usually it is thought that this is some sort of prophetic denunciation, but I'm, if I'm honest, a little uncomfortable with that. There certainly are instances in the Bible of righteous anger, But personally, I find that whatever little righteous anger I have is least likely to be purely righteous anger, least likely to be righteous anger when the wrong that has been done is against me. 
Perhaps I'm alone in that. I suspect that when it's against me, my response, if it's anger, is usually rather tarnished by unrighteous anger as well. And frankly, when I read these verses, I hear a little bit too much of personal vindictiveness. The sort of thing that you would not expect from someone trying to fulfill even the Old Testament mandate of loving your neighbor, for it's there too, or even of helping your enemy when his ox or donkey is in trouble, for that is there. These sort of teachings that are as much mandated in the Old Testament as they were in the New Testament teaching of love for neighbor and enemy. Now, of course, certainly it is true. Judgment is coming on all those who sin who do not repent. But, 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 it is mine to repay, says the Lord. I will judge, not the psalmist. And if your enemy is hungry, the Lord says, feed him. These words that the Apostle Paul quotes in his letter to the Romans are from the Old Testament. Now, I don't think the psalmist is sort of letting them have it in his heart. No, he's, he's, he's too spiritually mature for that. His, his turning to the Lord straight away in his distress reveals a man of prayer and, and not of pettiness. But I do think... The sting of his anger is being drawn by God in that prayer. You see, what happens when someone hurts you is only half the cruelty. The real danger is you mimic that activity and pass along the cruelty. You become like that yourself and start to hurt other people. That's the real danger. And in a way, that is the inevitable pattern unless the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ intervenes as it does here and as I pray it will for you this morning. Yeah, this is really, I think, a form of confession. The deceit is shooting at him. (laughs) Well, now he wants God to shoot back at them with sharp arrows and with glowing coals of the broom tree. Unleash the fire of heaven, God. The broom tree coals, we are told by one ancient commentator, were known to last without going out for a very, very long time. He wants the deceit that they spread about him to come down on them ten times as bad, if not more. It is a confession. He shouldn't feel like that. It also, of course, is a kind of prediction. Proverbs, for instance, is full of the reality that if we set traps for other people with our words or in other ways, in the end the trap falls upon us. That is the kind of world that God has created, that sin results in judgment in the here and now and only grows towards final judgment. That is true, but this psalm is not written to the person who's doing the lying It is written by the person who has been the victim of the lying. 
Somehow, in this place, in verses 3 and 4, he has to get the emotions, the dark, even demonic, if you like, emotions, to the surface, and then take them to the only place where they can be safely dealt with, God himself. And then when we start to talk like that, we can begin to see why so often the Psalms were used in the New Testament to take us to the cross. Psalm 110 is frequently quoted in the New Testament for that purpose. One ancient Christian writer recommended that the Psalms be read first when you're beginning to find out about Christian things, even before the New Testament, which may be stretching things a little too far, but you know what he meant when you start to read the Psalms. They are the language of the soul. They are the spirituality of the heart. They are the place where the objective doctrine combines with the subjective experience and the questions that that fire raises are all answered at the cross of Jesus where love and justice meet. My brother, let this psalm take you there. Take all the bitterness that you have swallowed over time as you have replayed in your heart the nasty things that have been said about you and leave them in God's hands. That might mean saying some things about those experiences and the safety of your relationship with God which would be equally eye-opening as verses 3 and 4. But between you and God have confidential dealings so that then you can emerge on the other side. It probably won't be a one-off experience. It will be a lifetime journey, the journey of forgiveness, not just seven times but 70 times seven as Jesus put it, the journey of the truth that I need forgiving just as much as anyone who has lied about me. And so you see, the last thing the psalmist does then is even more remarkable. Many of our songs are trite because they are overly triumphalistic. Sure, there is victory to come. There will be a time when there is no more crying. Christ has won the victory. But we live in the here and now without that victory finally and fully applied. And it can be rather demoralizing to be asked to try and live in a sort of preachy world where everything is as easy as a perfectly constructed three-point sermon. That's not life. All we hear are the perfect victories and how this person came out of sin into darkness and how the other person got victory over this problem or that or how that person's children were struggling but now they are thriving. That's all we hear. Wonderful as those stories are and We have many of them. Wonderful as those stories are. If that's all we hear, then there is a danger that we're not really braced for the reality of the next step in the ongoing journey. For the Christian life is a pilgrimage. 
And so as he concludes the song, he concludes in a way that no modern writer of a devotional book will conclude, nor any hymn writer, nor any therapist, or at least too few of all the above. He concludes with a reality check. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Hardly a good finale to a popular Christian devotional book. Now, you see, the woe to me, what's going on here? It suggests to me, when I read that, that the psalmist, frankly, is not yet really over his personal hurt. Uh, he's made progress, for sure, but he still seems to me to be taking too much pity on himself. Uh, you know, woe to me. Come on. God has delivered you. He's answered you. You're moving towards Jerusalem. You're on the great journey of God's people to the city of God. And yet, if we are honest, woe is me. That's sometimes how we feel. It's not right. It's not best. We need to talk to God to get us out of that. But it is true that we do feel like that sometimes. Meshech and Kedar are places very far distant from Israel, one along the Black Sea, the other in the Arabian tribal areas. And together they seem to function as the psalmist's feelings about the sort of people who are lying about him. They were Philistines, barbarians. Not exactly politically correct either to go about calling some of those with whom he was dwelling crass and philistine barbarian hordes not much better than mongol invaders but again this psalmist has not yet arrived he is still on the journey yes he is on the journey but here he has made a highly significant perhaps it is too much to say actually cataclysmic but certainly seminal change So he says, I am for peace. Or literally, I peace. I shalom. (laughs) That's nowhere near where he was in verses 3 and 4. Then he wanted to get them with warriors' sharp arrows and glowing coals of a broom tree. Thank you very much. But now, he is peace. He has internalized the shalom of God. And so his disposition to these invaders who have labeled him and lied about him and put him in a relational trap, his disposition, nonetheless, is now one of peace. He's leaving it up to God. Any response he makes to their slander, his speech, any response he makes is now not vengeful, but peaceful for their good, I think. Now that hasn't changed who they are yet. They're still for war. But he has left them in God's hands. 
and taken the most important step in dealing with lies and slander, which is to be in the right place himself before God. He is no longer defined by the lies that people say about him. He's defined by the truth of what God says about him. You are my child. You have an eternal destiny. Blessed are you. Beloved. He knows he can't control their response. He's left that between them and God. He's given up his right to play judge, jury, and executioner all rolled into one. I, peace. What a wonderful place to be. Well, let's go to prayer and see if we can be in that place as well. Just a moment of quiet. Perhaps for you to say in your heart some of verses 3 and 4. Father, as we take the lies and slander, the verbal cuts that we have received, and are honest about those things with you in your presence. We take them to the cross and find there Jesus who answered not back with viciousness, but said, Father, forgive them. Jesus, we thank you so much for your death on the cross. We thank you that it means that whoever turns from their sin and puts their faith in you can begin a pilgrim journey to the very city of God. We thank you it means that there is forgiveness for us and that by your Spirit, there is forgiveness that we can offer to others so that we may be released from the box that we feel we have been put in to live a life of peace. Father, I pray that would be true for all of us here this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen.